Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Hi, I'm Lisa Fujia-Parks, and today I'm in conversation with two leaders I respect greatly in the violence prevention movement. Anthony Smith is the executive director of Cities United, a national network of mayors working to end violence against African-American men and boys and create safe, healthy, and hopeful communities. Thank you so much for joining, Anthony. Hey, Lisa. Thank you for having me. And Cuco Rodriguez is a program officer with the Hope and Heal Fund, the fund to stop gun violence in California. Thank you for joining and welcome, Cuco. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk today about ending violence, particularly gun violence, including by law enforcement, and how we can accelerate justice and peace in our communities. And we're going to focus on black and brown communities where people are suffering the most and lift up calls to action through the summer and beyond. And importantly, we'll hear stories of how communities are meeting this tremendous moment of challenge with deep humanity and creativity. We're going to start with the topic of police violence against African-Americans and other people of color. Just to set a bit of context of what we know has been happening in the last few months, Ahmaud Arbery was killed by a former police officer and his son, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, were both killed by police. Their deaths and the deaths of more people that have occurred during this time are a part of a long string of murders of African-Americans by primarily white law enforcement and civilians. Anthony, what do you want to say about what's happening across the country right now and what communities can do to stop this type of violence against African-Americans and other people of color? Cities United is actually headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky, where we lost Brianna Teller to uh, a police-involved shooting. She was at home, sleeping in her bed. The police came to her house with a no-knock warrant, busted down her door. Her partner, who was in the house with her, who had a legal gun, shot back to protect himself and her. And they shot into the house 20 times, killing her while she was asleep. Also wounded him and took him to jail and arrested him for attempted murder. When we are sitting in a, in a state that is a ground, your uh, stand your ground state. So lots of different things happening at this time that make it hard for black folks to feel safe in this country. And I also want to make sure that we talk about Tony McDade from Tallahassee, a, a trans black man who was also killed by police. And I think it's hard for us as black folks and in this country to really have any real solutions for our other than uh, radical change in what the police department looks like and what it's for. Uh, we have continually seen our community more so controlled and contained by police than protected and served and are able to kill us at will at any given time and never been held accountable. So I think for us and for black folks across the country, we're looking for other options to public safety, right? How do you redefine what that means? And how do we not rely on law enforcement jails and detention centers to serve as that for our country and for us as people? 
you know, it's trying times and, and what it, what we're seeing across the country as a collective of young black folks and black folks and allies saying enough's enough. For me, it feels like a collective scream that I can't breathe uh, and, and I really need you to get your knee, that uh, baton arm off my neck so that we can move forward as a country. But until we make those radical changes, until we reimagine what public safety is and reinvest and the things that truly make folks safe, healthy, and hopeful. I don't see the, the protest or the uprising ending. I see folks really pushing hard this time. I think young people have seen from Mike Brown to now, too many people died at the hands of police to believe that they're gonna change. Uh, so there's gonna have to be some push and force to make that happen. Kuko, what would you like to say about what's happening, particularly in California and what communities can do? This is a repeat. This is just an additional chapter in, in what's happened in this country kind of since its birth, beginning with colonization and what happened to people. I mean, it's really built on this. My previous career was in the engineering field. I tend to be a systems person in terms of what I look at. And I think racism by itself is, is a system. It's an evil system that perpetuates itself. And I try to view it that way. The racism has this unique way of adapting itself to each group and even the things that it uses against one group, it'll turn around and use as a strength to another group. And the way that African-Americans are impacted might be different the way Latinos are being impacted. Right now with COVID, there's so much talk about going back to the way things were. The reality is, is for people of color, the way things were was really bad. I mean, I think that everybody is getting a taste, the rest of the country of what it is to live in this constant crisis and this constant state of anxiety and they don't like it and the fact is is that we were fine with that when it was occurring and these crises were occurring in these pockets that were primarily black brown and people of color and i think that it's really important for us to not lose sight of that as we do this work we have to really evolve as well as racism is evolving i think that especially on the ground in terms of communities i think that right now you see a lot of support from across the board, especially from our white counterparts. Because as much as this country was founded on this idea of democracy, the reality of it is, is that democracy has not been democratized. And for people of color, we're still beginning to try to understand and even begin to trust this democratic process because it really hasn't done right by us. So that's what the challenges that we're facing. And I think that moving forward, I really would hope that we begin to have these honest, frank conversations and reflect these things back to folks. Because to me, the issue is that what happened in Minneapolis is a horrible event. And arresting four officers is a good first step, but it ignores the fact that there is a whole infrastructure that thought it was okay. When you see these types of events, what you wanna ask yourself is, where would your head have to be like, what would have to be in terms of your experience to feel that that kind of behavior was okay? Because I'll tell you, when I watch the video, what I see is a person who felt there was nothing wrong with what they were doing, which means that they've been doing it and who felt that there was going to be absolutely no repercussions to his actions. So it speaks volumes, not only about his behavior and his experience, but it speaks about the culture of where he worked at. And I think that those begin to be very difficult things to address. But I think more importantly, my hope is that as we move forward, we continue to engage with some of the segments who are not advocates, 
some of our white counterparts who maybe haven't delved into this arena and who actually do have a role in all of that's going on because they are the ones that are voting for DAs who are tough on crime and for judges who were DAs before. I think that's the conversation that I'm hoping kind of evolves into this because I think that this is this is where very like a, a footnote in, in a very big book of, of racist atrocities that have gone on in this country. Thank you both. And, and what I hear you saying are, which just resonates so much, um, just needing to be really clear to invest in what really works to create public safety, to divest from what is harming communities, to engage white folks who are not engaged as those who are responsible for, quote unquote, getting off the, the necks of black and brown people and really amplifying this collective scream for change. I just want to ask you, because I think it's so clear and I agree with you, we need systemic change. Are there specific policies that you have in mind that we should be getting behind that will change these systems and the culture? There's lots of policy to look at, right? And I think part of the work that we have to do is there's policies that we've got to come back, like push back against, and there's policy that we've got to bring forward, right? So uh, part of what Cities United is going to be doing over the next little while, working with our mayors, is really looking at some of the policy changes that they can make today. Uh, no city should have a no-knock warrant policy. Uh, it makes zero sense, especially if you're in a stand-your-ground state where people can legally own guns and you break into their house and they shoot at you, and then you expect folks not to use that right. So no-knock warrants is one for us. Also, looking at use of force, right? What does that really mean? And how do we define that? And what, how do we have a national definition around what is too much force? Because any of it really is. But at the end of the day, what we saw uh, in, uh, in Minneapolis was definitely not, should not be a protocol if it is, to have your knee on somebody's neck. Uh, so use of force is one that we're looking at. Then also just stand your ground laws. Stand your ground laws have never been instituted equitable for black and brown folks, right? So. I can't protect my house the same way that a white person can, but there's laws that say I should be able to, but it, the, the outcomes are different. So those are three that we know we're gonna look at, we're gonna be looking at more. But I think the biggest policy and the biggest structural change is actually paying attention to city budgets and uh, state budgets and county budgets and forcing folks to make investments where we know it's gonna matter, right? We know across the country, most city budgets spend anywhere between 35 and 65% of their city budget on public safety, right? And what does that really get us as a country? And I know we need fire, EMT, and all of the other things that come with it, uh, but do we really need as many police officers? Do we really need all of these different things that are not protective and, and make, other, make everybody feel safe and healthy? Last thing I'll say about policy for us as well is how do you get SROs out of uh, out of schools? How do you get police out of school systems because they're not needed there? We need mental health workers. We need more counselors. We do not need to have police inside of schools, armed police inside of schools, because that's part of that. That's the start to the prison pipeline for a lot of kids. So those are some of the policy changes that we're really looking at. We're really clear, and they're going to be pushing hard with mayors that you need to look at your budget and make those changes because we, where you put your money at tells us what you value. 
we've laid out, I think, the big picture of really needing to invest in what creates true community safety and divest from the things that are exacerbating or harming our communities. So as we talk about violence in the community, I think we can really build on that conversation. We know that COVID-19 has really, in many ways, exacerbated the con conditions that give rise to gun violence in our communities. And in some cases, in some cities, we're seeing spikes in the rates of gun-related homicides. And, you know, this is often happening in the very same communities where folks are being hit hardest by the virus. So I know, Anthony, you work with a lot of leaders, government and community, and you track the data and the reporting on gun violence. What do you see happening with respect to community gun violence across the country? I think COVID-19 has actually uh, really just pulled the curtain off of everything uh, in a way that I don't think people thought would happen. Gun violence, as we know it and, and have seen it, has always had ups and downs and spikes. Part of the reason it has is because we've never truly wanted to treat it as a public health issue that it is. So for me, when I watch COVID, uh, how we how we as a country are reacting to COVID-19, I'm trying to figure out how do we learn from that so that we now have a public health approach to an issue. And now we can say to people, this is what we've been saying we need to do with gun violence, right? This is what we've been needing to do for years and we need to heavily invest, right? So. For me, nothing has really been shifted and the, there's no new trends in gun violence for me because if you look at the data over years, we've always seen ebbs and flows and we've seen spikes and it's because we as a country have never truly invested in, in what we know works and we've only band-aid and piecemealed it and made people work uh, miracles with shoestring budget, right? So for me, when you can tell me we can have all of these tracers I forget the full name for the folk, but the folks who are able to go out, find somebody who had COVID and then trace back, that's the same thing that interrupters have been doing for years, but we don't give them the same resources that we're great to give to these folks. But again, I just think this is a moment for us to be as radically different as we can and, and really educate some people on what public health really means and how, they, how it works and how it actually does solve issues that we're all concerned about. Kuko, what are you, can you talk about what you're seeing in California and the kinds of work that interrupters are doing and also how we can support them? We're fortunate in California that we have some of those most stringent gun laws in the country. Despite that, we still have unacceptable death rates due to guns in terms of homicides, in terms of suicides, domestic violence, and then mass shootings. And I wanna, I wanna go back a little bit because again, from a systems standpoint, we are a race equity organization and fund, but we also, and again, by doing so, I tell people when you're a race equity organization, you have to understand systems because racism doesn't exist in pockets. It's very connected. If racism was a person, the same person that is responsible for deaths in black communities the same, is the same person that's responsible for locking up immigrant children and separating families, same person, except it's connected and it's bigger than this. So I think that it's important to, to point that out. In terms of what we're seeing here in this country from a system standpoint in the state is that that I think communities do know what to do when it comes to gun violence. When we see examples in other areas, when you look at the way this country responded to the crack epidemic and didn't care that people were locked up, that we people were impacted, just criminalized communities 
primarily African-American communities. But then when opioids hit and began to permeate into white communities, all of a sudden, a lot of these laws that were created during the 80s and 90s, we wanted to rethink. I think that we do see these broader systems respond in an appropriate fashion. They're just not responding to what's happening in our communities. We see how people are supposed to and how systems are supposed to comport themselves. But what we're not seeing is that same level of behavior attributed to the way they treat us and the way that they address gun violence issues in communities. I think that a lot of community organizations can be supported in the work that they do and been doing it for a long time. I think that we just haven't had access to those larger infrastructures and funding mechanisms. The fund that we work with in California deals with gun violence across the spectrum. When I first started, one of the things that our fund was not focused on was mass shootings. And they said, well, because it primarily affects 1% of the population, and really that shouldn't be our focus because we have larger gun deaths in these other areas, communities of color. I said, no, we need to focus on that. And the reason we need to focus on that, because you know, I, I lived in Santa Barbara, I worked in Santa Barbara during one of the worst shootings in 2015, maybe, which was the Ala Vista shooting. In that shooting, maybe eight people died. But in that shooting, what you saw was a lot of chaos with systems in terms of coordination because they weren't prepared. But what you saw was the way that systems should respond. You saw systems step up and do whatever they could. You'd never heard one thing about, that's not our lane, we don't have money. Everybody just responded to the traumatic events. And the reason I'm saying that is that for us, it's been important in conversations that we've had with people, foundations, especially community foundations, say, look, the way that you respond to that is the way you're supposed to respond to a public health crisis. Why is it that you're not responding in that same fashion when people are shot in Oakland, in East LA, in Boyle Heights, in these other poor communities of color? And I think that for us, it's important to reflect that back to organizations to point out that there's inconsistencies in the way that they're funding and supporting these efforts. So Anthony, is there anything that you want to say about these issues around local community organizations really doing the work in the neighborhoods, on the ground, or other types of organizations, and what we, sh you know, the types of violence prevention work we should be investing in? And particularly, I'm thinking, what are the types of actions we need to focus on right now and through the summer? As I talked about earlier, right? So any city that we go into, a Cities United. Uh, we are pushing for uh, cities and communities to really uh, resource those folks in the front line doing the work, right? When you, when you have folks who do interruption work and when you talk to them about, you know, they're part-time, they're underpaid, they're underserviced, they have no benefits, but you also know that these young men and women are giving you their lives, right? They're putting their lives on the line, right? So for me... If folks are truly committed to keeping our young people safe, healthy, and hopeful, you've got to have a front line of well-paid, well-resourced, well-supported interrupters, right? Folks who know how to get in and talk to folks, build relationships. Because what we've seen through COVID-19 is not only are they doing that work, they're also serving as messengers to keep people safe from the disease uh, that's taking people out, right? So they're having, they're taking on a lot of responsibility that we are all benefiting from, uh, but are not being compensated in the right way and are not being taken care of in the right way, right? They need mental health services. They need time off with pay. They need the whole nine. 
and they need to be deemed as essential and frontline workers across the country, and we need to fully invest in them. And I think there's also a number of uh, organizations that I know across the country, even here in Louisville, I've been getting calls from funders around who do we support and how do we support. And for me, there's capacity that needs to be built in organizations that really have the ear and relationship with the people. Uh, they might not, uh, you know, they might not be able to write that grant. They might not be as professional. They might not be, but they know how to get to people and help people get what they need. Right. And they keep people safe and they keep people uh, connected uh, to the resources and they make sure that their kids and their families eat. They make sure that they have a clothes. They make sure that they get to school. And we've got to get away from only supporting those organizations, mostly ran by white folks who then subgrant to the smaller organizations uh, and and then get to count their numbers so they continually get to get the resources. Right. So for me, any foundation that I'm talking to, any any funder is that I'm only pointing them to small black and brown led organizations and, and helping them build their infrastructure and build their capacity because those are the folks who I know are doing the work and doing the work for free, most likely. And I don't think that's a fair thing to happen. So for me, we need to invest where we know people can get to people and people have trust. But another thing we also need to be paying attention to now that people's budgets from COVID-19, and they're gonna also probably try to count this, uh, say that their budgets are different because of the uprisings, is that summer employment and summer opportunities for young people are gonna get cut, which means folks will have more time on their hand and be pushed back into the cycle of balance and never have a break. So we've gotta make sure that kids can work this summer. We gotta make sure that there's summer opportunities for them to go to so that their parents can go to work, right? So we've got, we've got a lot of work to be paying attention to and if we're not focused on those communities that are most impacted, we're going to miss the mark. Kuko, what else do you want to add in terms of the types of actions and investments we should be making right now and through the summer? When I started this work, it was called uh, male involvement, rites of passage work. That was like 25, 26 years ago. But a lot of the work that we were doing is now called healing work, right? And I've been going back to a lot of that. I've, I've always done that work because I think that that there's a lot of trauma that we're dealing with in our communities and a lot of hope that we have to provide people. And I think that beyond the employment, beyond these other things, we also have to look at deeply how we are supporting these folks. We should be concerned with the direct impacts of COVID. But my concern in this work is what is the impact that this is going to have on younger generations who are witnessing not only death around them, but the complete and utter lack of resources in one community and then access to resources in another. Those are very defining moments for people that create a great deal of trauma. The fact that we can't even mourn our losses, the fact that people around us are dying and nobody cares, that sense of invisibility and not being seen and being ignored, I can tell you, has terrible impact on people. We cannot do this work if you don't have a lot of your own pain and your own issues addressed. And I think that we need to afford people that space. And more importantly, the reason I think that's important is because that is where our communities have come from, from a collectivist standpoint. But we live in an individualistic world. And I think that we forget that, that the origins of our, a lot of our communities were really about each other and about us. It was about the we, not the me. And I think that in this work, when you watch interrupters, when you watch folks that do gun violence work, 
That's what they're trying to connect people to is saying it's not just about you. It's about the impact that you have on other people and trying to bring people to that center and that culturally rooted place. So I think that more and more we're going to be seeing that. I hope that we do. And I think there's excellent people in the community that are doing that. And I hope that we support more of that. We all work together and we have been looking at uh, what works in communities for years and years. So all of the things that you are mentioning really resonate as the kinds of things that we need to be investing in. And I am really concerned about state and local budget deficits. So I want to revisit that and really talk concretely about the type of advocacy we're going to need to do within our cities and counties and states. What do we need to do to make sure that the strategies we know work, the, the strategies that you just mentioned, continue to get funded and don't get cut as our cities and counties grapple with budget shortfalls? Anthony, do you want to start us off? Yeah, be glad to. Uh, and I think this might be the only time where I would actually lean in on having white folks lead the conversation. Because uh, I think white folks are going to have to step in and say, this is where we want to spend our money, right? Uh, and get away from what they're used to. So moms demand action, all of these other folks who are stepping in and leaning in, now it is the time for you to really show up and bring your peers. Because they're going to expect it from me and Kuko and others who look like us. And it's easy for them to dismiss because they won don't believe we hold the political capital to get them out, right? So therefore, it's easy for folks to dismiss black and brown folks, even though we they know they only get in office because we vote or not vote. Uh, so one, this is a moment in time when we've got to have all of our allies aligned and prepared to fight for what we need. And that means we've got to have conversations with every elected official and we've got to send in folks who they're not expecting to have these conversations with them, hold them accountable. I don't know how folks are doing house parties to raise money right now, but whatever they're doing, those people who are helping them get their resources to win their election, stay in office, need to help now have a different conversation and say, this is how we want to spend our money. And one of the budgets I think we always forget about and we always need to pay attention to is the school budget. Here in Louisville, our, our school system has a budget of about $1 billion compared to the city's budget, which is about 776 million, that numbers could be off. But how they spend their money matters to our kids' safety too. Uh, so for us as communities, we've got to pay attention to all of those budgets across the board, have a plan of action of, we don't want money spent here, but we would rather have it spent here and be real clear about that. But this would be the time where I would lean into white allies and have them lead that conversation and lead the charge. Kuko? What do you have to say about budget advocacy? It's the economics of this. It is not financially sustainable to have racist systems that create health inequities. There's a lot of research now that's beginning to, to kind of highlight that. And despite that, it's being ignored. But more importantly, the economics of this are not viable. I mean, if you look at places like Minneapolis, okay, what is the total budgetary cost at the end of all of this, what is going to be the total cost of having a racist police force? It's expensive. When I would go into a budget meeting, I would say, you know, my staff make $50,000 a year. It costs you $100,000 a year to lock up one person. I can guarantee you that I will keep 
two people out of jail for a year and you have net savings. And I think it was couching it in a way and speaking to a lot of these government officials in a way that really made economic sense. Our biggest supporters were people that I never thought would even support the work that we did, not on humanistic terms, but they supported them on economic terms. And I think that sometimes even racists understand economics. We have net savings for people. We just need to figure out how to reflect that back to people so they understand. And they view us as the true public safety officers that we are, and not law enforcement. Law enforcement, let's be clear, they're not about reducing crime, reducing violence. They're about locking people away, period. They enforce when somebody breaks the law. And I'm not going to tell law enforcement how to do their job because they'll tell me that I don't have the background, I don't have the expertise. But likewise, why is it that law enforcement is defining for us how we need to address issues of violence and crime that exist in our communities? That is not their lane, that is not their purview, and I think that that narrative needs to shift where right now they're being viewed as if they have any impact on crime and violence, and in reality, they don't. They simply are dealing with the after effects of crime and violence, not the prevention. You all are speaking to really the political environment that is amplifying racism and causing a lot of death and suffering. And I want to share a quote and then ask you a question. I love this quote by the late Grace Lee Boggs, who really, um, to me, was a model of how to be a lifetime, lifelong activist and to act in solidarity for very deep fundamental transformation. And she reminds us that in the middle of a catastrophe, in the middle of disaster, people particularly who have suffered see an opportunity to evolve to another stage of humanity. And I share that because I see this and I feel this and I'm experiencing this where we're continuing to see communities rise and lead with vision and love and strategy. And so I wanted to share the quote and just ask you, what have you been a part of or what have you witnessed that shows this type of deep humanity and creativity that is really leading us in the direction of the kind of radical change that you're talking about, Anthony, um, in this moment? If you could just sort of share a story of that and whoever wants to start. Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing in Grace Lee Ball. She's one of my favorite organizers and uh, and I think has always, her words have always, were always on point and, uh, and always uh, timely. I think, you know, for me and for the work that I get to do on a day-to-day, uh, Lisa, is that, you know, I see it every day, you know, even in the midst of all that we deal with. Uh, when I'm around young people and young people are being young people and sharing their excitement for life with you, sharing their way forward, uh, we've got young people here in Louisville one of them was a fellow for Cities United. They just put on a virtual town hall around gun violence prevention, around what young people can be doing and how they move. Well, we'll attended, uh, and, and it got bombed on Zoom, but they were still excited about that moment, and they still are out working. And I just got a call from a young lady who's out in California, Chowe Kuko, who hit me up and say, I need help thinking through some stuff about how to get more young people engaged. So for me, every day that I get to engage young people who are uh, trying to find their way, looking for support, looking 
for a way forward uh, is where I see that humanity at, right? And I think, you know, the more we lean in with young people, the better we'll be. And the, and the more we give them the space to lead and we follow, uh, I think that's how we actually get to what we're trying to get to. Uh, our job is to be here for them, to listen to them and create space for them and support when they need it and continue to push the systems to be different. But our, our space and time, we should spend more time, as much time as we can with our young people so that we can make sure that they have what they need. So that's where I find it and that's where I see it. And young people have always given me the energy that I need to continue to move and the hope that I need to continue to move. So all day long, if I could be with young people, I would, uh, but that's not what my job lets me do every day. But if I could, that's where I would spend the majority of my time. How about you, Kuko? You know, I'm very hopeful. Again, as Anthony was saying, young people are very important. But I also think that, you know, for us at Hope and Heal, one of the things that we are trying to do is, as I said earlier, tap into our internal history and our, our traditions and what we do and how we are. And I think that I am beginning to see more work and we're trying to support work that is connecting the young people, especially maybe it's because I'm getting older and elders and communities. You know, I've seen a few things and I'd love to share that and, and I'd love it not to be for not and to be able to connect. But also it takes us back to more of a traditional practice in terms of the way that we do things. I struggle sometimes when people talk about youth development, youth development, youth development, and you know, young people need to lead and you need to get out of the way. And I get that, but it's never resonated with me because I come from a community where young people and old people work together, where it's a collective. And it's still, even that framework of youth development is very much a, a white construct that ignores our history and our background and the value that we have about our whole family and our whole community and this intergenerational process that goes on the beginning of that cycle with young people and the end of that life cycle with elders playing a major role in our communities. And I think that more and more we're beginning to see those connections being either intentionally or accidentally, where you're beginning to connect elders and communities who are stepping up and maybe are connecting with a lot of the work that young people are doing. And the young people breathe a lot of energy and excitement and elders and communities are beginning, they're bringing in a lot of wisdom and a lot of practice and experience and the mistakes that they've seen and what they've seen in life. So I think that so for me, the, those are the hopeful things. I think that the partnerships across communities of color is something that a lot of us have have attempted and lamented does not exist enough because uh, usually it's these external forces that create dissension and distrust and historically, but you're beginning to see a shift in that. And I think that that's the important part is these cross-cultural connections and partnerships that are existing that you're beginning to see form that I'm very hopeful about. I am so grateful to both of you. Thank you so much for joining this conversation and sharing your wisdom so generously and partnering with me in Prevention Institute. We will lift up your calls to action. We will continue to partner with you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be in conversation today and Look forward to more partnership. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. 